Welcome to another quick chat of the Canadian Psychological Association. We'll be doing this every day during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Eric. I'm the communications officer at the Canadian Psychological Association. And I encourage you, as I do every day, to go to our website, cpa.ca slash corona-virus for all kinds of up-to-date resources, fact sheets, and blogs like Coupling and Trauma in the Context of COVID-19. That one is written by Dr. Heather McIntosh. She is an expert in couples, stress, and trauma. And in that blog post, she outlines seven strategies for dealing with the coronavirus as a couple. We're going to talk about those today. Hi, I'm Heather McIntosh. I'm a prof at McGill and a clinical psychologist, and I do research on couples in distress, uh, most of whom have a history of trauma. So we uh, have developed a a model of therapy for couples who are struggling with some of the impacts of trauma and how that affects their relationships. You shared seven strategies uh, for coping uh, with trauma for couples. I'd like to go through them one at a time, if that's all right with you. Sure. Uh, Starting with compassion and harm reduction. What does that mean? Well, I think compassion is a fairly obvious one. Um, You know, that thing that your partner does that drives you sort of insane, but then you go to work and you forget about it and you come home and they've cleaned it up. Whatever that thing might be, Mm -hmm. leaving socks on the floor, whatever that thing is. Well, now we're on 24-hour lockdown with our beloveds, and uh, we really just need to be consciously, actively working towards acceptance acceptance and compassion because our partners are not going to all of a sudden be different people. (laughs) They're going to still be the person who left the socks on the floor. Um, Or they're still going to be the person who really struggles to talk about things when they're upset. Or the person who really gets so anxious they need to get close to you to feel okay. They're not going to be suddenly a different person. So let's just forget the wish that that might happen and try our hardest to accept that person as they are. And what comes along with that, especially where there's a history of trauma, is that right now people don't have access to all of the things that they might normally have access to to uh, work through emotional distress. So if someone is a trauma survivor and part of how they do well in the world, how they build their own resiliency is by exercise or by being in a choir, singing. Um, Those things are not available to them in the normal form right now. And so they may fall back to some old patterns of coping. And some of those old patterns of coping might not be so healthy for them. And this isn't the time to be super critical about that to be judgmental or angry about a partner who maybe starts um, going back to some emotional eating patterns. But it is the time to be honest and open and transparent about it so that it's a part of the conversation that you're having. And we kind of have to draw the line uh, in some places around things like drinking, um, drug use, uh, self-injury, where these things can really cause harm in a home. And so how do we help a person who's struggling with finding ways to cope with their distress uh, and, and has had taken from them some of the things that they have found to be helpful 
in their more, you know, they've gone through some therapy, they've done some healing, they've developed some new strategies, and all of a sudden they are back in a place where they're struggling again. And that's where the compassion comes in and being able to talk about it. So when I follow my son around after he's finished making himself breakfast and I put the peanut butter back in the cupboard and put the lid back on and I put the milk back in the fridge and I, you know, I just have accepted the fact that that's what I'm going to have to do, that he's not going to do any of these things on his own because we're being compassionate, right? Well, it depends how old your son is. He's 20. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's just, that's just it. If your son is 18 and all of a sudden he's been quarantined with you in your house, it's totally okay to say, dude, we're all in this together. Help me out here. Put the lid back on the peanut butter. But if that 18-year-old has, is having trouble maybe finishing school because everything's gone off, off the grid and um, separated from their partner for the first time since going away to university, and there's all these things that are happening, and that 18-year-old is at home, then, yeah, we're going to call them to be responsible for themselves as human beings living in your house. And at the same time, we're going to be compassionate about maybe they do need to spend a little more time watching TV or playing video games and not helping as much as you might want them to. Mm-hmm. All right. The second uh, strategy that you have is acknowledging attachment styles. Uh, is this, this uh, refers presumably to a partner's attachment style? Well, attachment styles are things that we develop as uh, very young Uh, infants and children, and they come from our connections with our caregivers. And so if our caregivers tend to be pretty responsive and they're there for us, then we develop what's called a secure attachment style. So we can be pretty flexible. When we have a problem, we turn to someone that can help us. And when that person helps us, we're able to receive the help and we feel better. And Um, You know, about 70% of people in the world tend to have what we would call this secure attachment style. And so in a situation like self-isolation or shelter-in-place, someone with a secure attachment style is more likely to be able to regulate their closeness and distance with a partner based on what they feel and need in the moment. So they're probably not going to be as distressed Um, as others might be, because they're able to kind of come and go. Now, the other 30% uh, are what we would call insecure attachment styles. And often that happens in the context of neglect or abuse and trauma, where a caregiver has not been able to be responsive to the child, or worse, uh, the person that the child really needs to take care of them is also someone who hurts them. And so, as you can imagine, if the person you need to feed you and house you and, in theory, take care of your emotional needs is also a person who's abusing you, that's going to mess up how you experience connections with other people. And... You know, there's lots of different ways that this can look in adult relationships, but there's two kind of big ones. One is what we would call a more avoidant approach. So I really want to be close to people, but it also kind of terrifies me. So 
So I have to sort of manage that by staying a little bit far away. So I come and go a little bit, but I want to be close to you, but I need lots of separate time. And then the other is called the preoccupied. And that person is like, the only way I can feel safe and okay is if I am right with you right now. So imagine, um, as often happens, a couple where you've got one of each. And you've got one who's, who's like glue and the other who would normally go out, you know, and go for a walk and disappear for a little while to regulate themselves to feel calmer. So part of, again, we come back to the compassion, we come back to the acceptance. This is, this is a thing, and the couple has come up with strategies for dealing with that way of being attached in, in, you know, in their relationship, but maybe even in therapy, where they've learned how to understand the dance that they do together. And again, all of a sudden, they're in the house, um, Maybe the kids are running around. Maybe they're having financial difficulties. And as soon as there is distress, our basic attachment styles tend to get amplified. They get bigger. So if I tend to be a little on the anxious side, but I've done some good therapy and I've you know, built this strong relationship with my partner, I'm going to be able to kind of manage that. But put me in a situation where a lot of the resources are removed, there's more distress, and we're together 24 hours a day, those attachment anxieties are going to just steadily increase. So the couple, you know, we would hope that they could talk about it. We would hope that someone who has a more anxious approach would be able to uh, take a time out each day, do some meditation. Um, there's some amazing apps on on online for mindfulness guided meditations to just take a little break and someone who's more avoidant that we would hope that they would be able to even put it in their calendar at four o'clock i'm going to have a cup of tea with my partner we're going to check in right that makes sense uh now the next one is call me seymour why (laughs) seymour oh i don't know i just like the name i like the name too (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it reminds me of a uh, little shop of horrors, but uh, that's, that's oh, a long yeah. story. It reminds uh, me of Principal Skinner on The Simpsons. See, you know, it's got different different ways of resonating with others. But I guess my point is it's a little bit funny. And um, part of what we're getting at here is how can we be a little bit funny? So the, the idea is... <laughs> At a technical level, what we're talking about is something called externalizing. So if, if the couple can see the thing that is happening in the world right now as a thing that the two of them are working on together, then when things start to heat up, when they're worried about the finances and they start to fight, when they're worried about who's going to go to the grocery store and one of them is feeling anxious about what that means, and they start to bicker, that they can see this thing that's happening as being something that the two of them are experiencing as a unit, as a couple, as a family. And so just, you know, sort of saying, well, Seymour is being a bit of a pest right now. If we call COVID or self-isolation or whatever, we call it Seymour when things are difficult, we can just kind of laugh and say, oh, Seymour's acting up. 
we better we better take a little break. Whatever it is to just give you a little bit of a, a little bit of a break, but that the two of you don't turn on each other. This isn't something that either of you have done to each other. This is a situation that is global. We're all in this. We're all in this together. And sometimes when we're really distressed, we can forget that. And we can lose track of how this is uh, an experience that all of humanity is having right now. And for some of it is more dire than for others. But if we turn on each other, well, we've lost our connection with the person who could be providing us with support and care. So, you know, blame Seymour. <laughs> Makes sense. I think I'm going to go with Ichabod. Because, Ichabod, I yeah, like it. There's uh, only Although one Ichabod, that I know of. Ichabod, does he lose his head somewhere along in the story? I, I feel like he's chased by a guy who lost his head. I, oh, I don't right. really remember right. the whole thing, but yeah. Yes, no, you're right. It's, it's the other guy who had the headless horseman. That's right. Um, so two of the points that you've uh, written down here are strategies, soothing and seeking safety, and then also seek safety if necessary. Uh, why are those two different uh, strategies? Well, they're two different strategies because in those particular points, I'm, I'm really speaking to trauma survivors. I'm really speaking to people who have a history of trauma, maybe in their growing up times. And the first is about, you know, on the one hand, I've said it's okay to default to old strategies if you're not hurting yourself or others. But the other thing is we know that connection with others is um, a source of well-being. <laughs> and so I guess I'm really just encouraging people who, you know, they've done some work, they've done some healing, they've been working hard, they've built a strong relationship, but maybe they're still turning to other things and other people for comfort. That's not going to work right now. So maybe just take the risk to try to connect uh, with your partner in a way that feels safe as possible. These things don't have to feel perfectly safe. They just have to feel tolerably safe. But the other piece is more about the, the experience of those who are living in violence now. And especially when there's a history of trauma in growing up times, Sometimes it's actually hard to identify when something is dangerous. Because if, if the person who feeds you Cheerios in the morning is also the person who comes into your bedroom at night and assaults you, that can make it very hard for a child to know who's safe and who's dangerous. And so in a situation where you're in self-isolation, it may be the case that that the potential for violence is enacted, that it, it rises up. And I really, you know, I really know that, that so many of us are trying hard to follow the recommendations of public health in terms of staying in and not, not going from house to house and, and being really careful with social isolation. But the reality is that if there is a need to get out, then a person needs to get out. Uh, 911 will still respond. Yes, there's lots of medical things that are taking up the services of first responders. But if a person calls 911 because they themselves or their children are at risk, they will come. And the shelters are still open. And AA is running groups online. And Al-Anon is running groups online. So don't stay at home in a dangerous situation because you feel 
that, you know, the world's on fire right now, so who am I to ask for help? Ask for help. And uh, you do say that, uh, you know, it's okay to default to old habits in, in a situation like this. You also say to try something new. Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> You're at home. <laughs> you want to try yoga? I am just so inspired by the creativity of people across, you know, the universe at the moment. The things that people have figured out how to put online is amazing. Piano lessons, violin lessons, choirs, people doing virtual plays, people doing virtual writing groups. There are so many offerings, knitting, how to learn how to sew a dress. There are so many things that have been put online. Many of them are free. And so, you know, why not try something new? Because if it doesn't work, what's, what's the harm? You just say, well, that wasn't for me. But if, if you happen to be in a situation where you do have access to the Internet and you're, you know, you've always thought you might learn how to play the piccolo, this could be the time. Give it a try, and you might find that your time in isolation is a whole lot more fun. Well, I asked my mom around Christmas time. Uh, she used to have a banjo in our house when I was a kid, <laughs> and I thought, I really want to learn how to play the banjo. And so I said when you, she was going to come up in March, obviously that's not happening now from Winnipeg, no. uh, but I said, can you bring the banjo so that I can learn how to play it? And uh, she doesn't have it anymore because she traded it for a canoe. Well, have you always wanted to learn how to canoe? Uh, no, I know how to canoe. I, I oh. don't know how to play the banjo. Get yourself a ukulele. It is the perfect starter stringed instrument. Isn't it, though? It's, yeah, nice and small. <laughs> it's compact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the very last one, that uh, strategy that you put uh, on this blog post is to reach out. And we've talked a little bit about that already. Uh, people shouldn't feel as though they're imposing their own needs on people in the middle of a global pandemic, that when you need help, it is out there and people should reach out for it. Yeah, I've been really, you know, I'm on a number of listservs. I'm on a number of Facebook and online groups with other psychologists and therapists. I've been so impressed with the speed with which people have made the transition to working online. Um, and you know, just the openness and curiosity to figuring this out in the best way possible. So there really are a lot of online resources, and there are a number of people who are offering low-cost or no-cost um, psychotherapy right now or psychological services. And I think, you know, go oh, for it. Sorry. If that might be helpful, go for it. Or go to an AA meeting. The, the list is, well, it's in the blog post, but if you just Google... AA online meetings, there's a webpage that takes you to a number of contacts that will connect you in to an online meeting. Well, that's great. And a lot of those resources are up at our webpage now, cpa.ca slash corona dash virus, including uh, the blog post from Dr. Heather McIntosh, Coupling and Trauma in the Context of COVID-19. Uh, thank you for doing this, Dr. McIntosh. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. And uh, thank you for connecting in with me. And all of our, uh, all of our humans are really, uh, in many ways, as we see 
in the world, so many people are, are rising up to bring their best, to share what they have as openly as they are able with the world. And I think that really, it does make a difference to how we experience these kinds of crisis situations.